and welcome to A Fine Balance, the podcast that explores work-life balance choices one story at a time. This is a podcast about work, life and the pursuit of balance, exploring the reasons behind the choices that individuals make when balancing work with everything else in their lives. Understanding how we work and why we prioritise some things over others can help make sense of work-life balance choices. This podcast seeks to showcase the diverse ways that people flex work around life and life around work to learn from one another and celebrate our differences. I'm your host, Dahlia Wittenberg, creator of the blog, A Fine Balance. In each podcast, I'll be inviting my guests to put a figure on their current work to life ratio. Of course, quantifying something this multifaceted isn't a science, but it's a good place to start for getting to the heart of their story. October 2023, the world woke up to horrific news of a terrorist attack in Israel. I won't go on to describe what took place or the events that have unfolded since then for reasons that will become obvious throughout this podcast episode. Suffice to say that the trauma that this evoked has been and continues to be far-reaching. This podcast, A Fine Balance, is all about the pursuit of balance. It seeks to empower people in their pursuit of balance between work and other things in life. Finding that balance in peacetime is hard enough. But there are those who, at the time of this recording, are living through a war, surrounded by bombardments and terrifying sounds like those of missile attacks and sirens. There are those who are bereaved or terrified for the immediate safety and well-being of themselves and their loved ones. There are those whose homes have been destroyed or who have had to evacuate their homes with little or no warning. There are those whose loved ones have been drafted into military service, or who have themselves been drafted, quickly leaving behind their civilian lives. There are those who from one day to the next now find themselves parenting alone. Some whose children are returning to remote learning, reminiscent of the homeschooling days of the COVID-19 pandemic, or those whose education is being interrupted entirely. In many cases, as I make this recording, usual workplaces will have dramatically altered, Perhaps work has ceased altogether, perhaps demand has risen sharply, or perhaps volunteering has replaced usual schedules. There are those supporting others experiencing untold anxiety, panic or life-threatening injuries, battling with feelings of intense anger and frustration at the injustices and pain that cut to the core. There are those who, like myself, based in London, are geographically far away from the war zone, but who are worrying for loved ones in danger. There are those that now find themselves on the receiving end of hate-filled comments and threats from strangers and friends in their communities and workplaces. And then there are those who have absolutely nothing to do with the conflict, no personal connections whatsoever, but find themselves confronted with the most disturbing images and messages of annihilation and violence that are enough to keep anyone up at night. So yes, finding balance in peacetime is hard enough. In times like these, it can seem impossible. This is why I have hastily pulled together this podcast episode with the kind help of my dear friend, Dr. Ian Moran, a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist. Our aim is to use this podcast as a platform to support all of those trying to find their balance amidst the shock, uncertainty and brutality of terrorism and war. With Ian's help, I hope that we can gently navigate the thorny question of how to find balance when you're living through war. 
I know we won't be able to solve the world's problems with this one conversation, but even if it supports just one listener to feel more balanced with everything that's going on, it will have served its purpose. Who knows, it may even provide perspective for the peacetime pursuit of balance too, or for those experiencing conflict elsewhere. It will be clear to listeners that Ian and I both have connections to Israel. That said, we're not here to discuss politics, religion or heritage, but rather how humans of any background and belief can find a balance that's right for them. I've known Ian for about 20 years. Besides being an accomplished clinical psychologist and psychotherapist with over a decade's worth of experience in the NHS and a thriving private practice, for as long as I've known him, Ian has possessed a calm demeanour and wisdom beyond his years. Through his work, he's helped countless people make the changes that they wish to see in their lives using a range of therapeutic approaches. He also has one of the most soothing voices of any person I know. When I reached out to Ian with the idea for this podcast episode, he was suitably cautious and modest. For starters, he too is dealing with the trauma of recent events, having been impacted in a very personal way. What's more, he was keen to stress that he is not a trauma specialist and that his line of work usually centres on providing therapy services for people experiencing mental health problems or other psychological, emotional, behavioural or relationship issues. Nevertheless, despite his reservations and his own heightened emotions at this time, Ian has generously come forward in the hope that this contribution will be of help to others who are struggling to find their balance. Of his own balance, Ian says that he generally feels he's got things on an even keel. He fiercely guards the boundaries between his work and other things in life, acknowledging when his energy dips and making sure that he has the resilience in himself to do his work, knowing how much he gives of himself to help his patients. Though this podcast episode deviates from my usual format of interviewing guests about their personal work-life balance stories, there are certainly things to be learned from Ian's approach to balancing work with everything in life. I hope that we'll be able to glean some nuggets of that along the way too. I'm really sorry that it's under these circumstances that I get to host Ian on the podcast, but nevertheless, I'm delighted to have him on. I hope that hearing his dulcet tones and sage advice will provide some respite and support to those affected in their pursuit of balance under such desperate circumstances. So it is both with pleasure and with a heavy heart that I say, Dr. Ian Moran, welcome to A Fine Balance, the podcast. Thank you very much, Dahlia. It's very good to be here. And uh, I, I'm going to try and live up to the glowing introduction. I'm also very conscious of my voice now. So uh, <laughs> I didn't know you, I didn't know that about it. I'll try and be as mellifluous as possible. Don't doubt yourself. You'll be amazing. <laughs> I'm so looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, I'm going to kick off. Um, well, I normally start with my first question, which is... Um, how you'd quantify your work to life ratio. But I think perhaps before we jump into that, it, there, it might be a good opportunity for you to just introduce yourself and, and explain a little bit about your situation. Thanks, yeah, I'm, um, well, I'm a clinical psychologist, who's, as you say, which means I'm a, a doctor of psychology, the kind who has specialized in helping people, as you say, with in sort of clinic settings, like with a health focus. Um, on things like depression and anxiety and relationship problems. Um, I've, um, the years have sped by, I've actually been working in the NHS or the third sector for 20 years now, so since, since we first knew each other. Um, I had a first career as a researcher in prisons, police stations, courts and things. Got frustrated at not being able to help people directly, but only sort of interview them and, and measure things. Um, and then went on to train in the NHS. I had experience working with a full age range from 
parents of babies to older adults. Um, I then had a career as a child and adolescent clinical psychologist, um, including, I think, perhaps possibly favorite part of my work, working in Stamford Hill with the Haredi uh, community, um, running parenting groups. Amazing, amazing. I was allowed uh, uh, as a you know, very secular person um, to be part of that. Um, and then I've done further training as a psychodynamic psychotherapist which is really about working with emotions and with the unconscious, like the idea that not everything is completely accessible. I'm aware that I might use jargon, like psychodynamic psychotherapist, and I think our field is full of it. If there's anything that sort of doesn't make sense, these things, I sort of can Google them. Um, I'll try to not over-explain as well, but really that means um, as a psychodynamic psychotherapist, I'm interested in helping people make sense of things that don't make sense on the surface. Logically, I know I'm safe, for example, but how come I'm feeling so scared when I'm not in danger right now would, would be an example of that. Um, I also train and uh, supervise therapists and train clinical psychologists uh, recently uh, and currently. Um, and I, I run training events for staff uh, in organizations like the, the British Embassy in Israel. Um, and I'm also based usually in Tel Aviv. So this is coming up to the present. Um, I was actually on holiday, uh, returning the day of the attacks, and my flight did not make it to Israel. Um, so I decided, well, we'll regroup, get some stability, decide uh, what happens next, and try and work out what's even going on in, in Israel. Um, and yeah, so I'm currently uh, in London, um, and yeah, ha having a very particular perspective, I suppose, sort of from the outside um, with patients both within Israel and uh, yeah, across the world, actually, uh, at the moment. Before we talk about that, um, do you want to just reflect a little bit on your work to life ratio and, and your approach to finding balance? Yes. Yeah. I would, uh, thank you. I really would. Um, I think you mentioned, you know, the ratio sounds like it. it invites a number and I'm going to be a complete hypocrite now because I very often ask my patients you know, on a scale of one to 100 how x uh, are you and I just I'm realizing I really not sure I can do that now I can't do it and mean it um, I think it's a good ratio um, possibly it's because I'm in flux a bit at the moment not in my usual not not, not in home um, but putting a number on it does seem seem hard. If I, I promise if I think of it during a conversation today, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, but it does feel like a good one. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned the sort of, I think the word was fierce uh, boundaries with, with things like uh, my weekend or you know, not having notifications on my phone um, uh, generally, and certainly outside of clinic hours. Um, I find that those sort of, those those boundaries, those walls around me, which I you know, take down sometimes. I'm not always inaccessible or out of contact. But you know, when I'm with a, with a patient, my phone is off. Uh, and that sort of creates that sort of like the privacy in the same way you have a private room that no one else is going to walk into. I find, I think it's very important similarly with things like uh, beeps on one's phone or um, e emails and WhatsApp messages, just having that kind of uh, yeah, that boundary is the word that keeps coming to my mind, um, just for me to be able to operate in with a focus on the person in front of me. Yeah, I think it's true. So often people do point to that as being one of the key ways that they find their balance is by mm. being present wherever they are. Mm. And I suppose for you, you're doing it for your patients because, yes, I 
I think that's a really good analogy of having nobody else in the room. But also for yourself, you're kind of protecting yourself in a way from being inundated and overwhelmed and protecting yourself from having that space when you're not working to be focused on the life that you're living outside of work. I think that's it's a really useful kind of technique, if you like, for people to learn from. It's not always so easy. Like how how do you come to the I don't know if it's confidence or that self-assurance to say no. Are you afraid to say no? Do you, do you have a problem with that at all? Uh, no, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think there's perhaps a few ways to answer it, but I suppose my starting point is having, um, having learned to tune into like, what is good for me right now? Like, what is caring for me? Um, Obviously, you know, in this context, thinking, well, how can I be the, you know, the, the, the highest level of functioning I can be in order to be able to you know, do challenging work, uh, some painful uh, work, especially in the past week or so. Um, I think that makes that link with the, the emotions focus of my, of my work and my training. If I tune into myself, you know, I'm, oh, I'm feeling more irritable than usual or I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm just aware I'm, I'm quite stirred up and full of feeling I don't even know what those are maybe in that you know at that moment um if I tune into that then I can start to take that seriously maybe communicate with people around me um so if if, if say my husband comes with some questions about I don't know something even like dinner if I'm not feeling able to process it rather than snapping which I think I might have done in the past, uh, previous years, a while ago. I, so, I think I tried to say, well, I'm not feeling very, ex sorry, I know it's a simple question, but I, I, I just don't feel able to even think about it right now. Mm. Um, so the sort of tuning into what, what, what I'm feeling inside, also that question of what is good for me, what is caring for me right now, which can mean, please um, leave me alone. It can also mean something that is normally good for me, like say going to the gym or, or doing things like that, actually is the, with the last thing I can face right now, the last thing I need right now. And I think that it's sort of, because all these things, like self-care, there's a sort of self-care mantra from, this, from the, the self-care industry. It's quite easy to interpret all of those activities, mindfulness, meditation, exercise, as always good to do all of the time. And I think if we come back to ourselves and what, what, what how we're feeling and, that question, yeah, it, what is caring for me my, right now? What, what is good for me? What do I need? Which I ask myself as much as my patients. Um, then I think we can have a bit more of a, I don't know, it's almost like we've got our own internal compass then, which tells us what to go towards and what to avoid. Um, obviously long-term, if I don't do any exercise, there'll be an impact, but in the short term, in the medium term, especially during times of crisis, I think it's a really great question, especially sort of in terms of giving yourself a break. Yeah, I'm just identifying what you need. But I think what I'm what I'm taking from this as well, and I I know we're gonna, you know, I could talk about this for ages with you, but I think there's some useful reminders there also as a parent. I think of the value that you give to each aspect of your life that you're describing. There, you sort of protect your work because you're caring for your patient, and then in your relationship as well, you want to protect that relationship and not just snap. It's actually by kind of filling your own cup and knowing what you need and looking after yourself by setting those boundaries, you're then able to give each part of your life the best of you 
I think as parents so often, and I hear this over and over again, you're managing so many multiple things at once as well as your work that it's hard to be so kind of uh, deliberate, I suppose, in those interactions with your children particularly. But it's a useful reminder what you're, what you're describing. Yeah, that, thank you. And you, you actually reminded me, I don't think, I'm not sure I did answer your previous question. So I was like, you know, do I feel bad about it? And, um, or is it difficult to say no? Yeah. Uh, it certainly was. You know, I was brought up in an English-Welsh family where there's this sort of um, priority on politeness, you know, I think like many people and perhaps, you know, uh, I mean, there's a lovely side to it, isn't there? Thinking about others, focused on other people, not just grabbing things for yourself without thinking about other people. But I think in, in my case anyway, I think that, that that did make it then difficult to sort of get that balance between it. But OK, so this other person might need X, but hang on, what do I need? Uh, and, and then working out, you know, without becoming some selfish monster uh how to to yeah, support other people and support myself you know to be to be equals i think mm. i've had the sense this week with and past two weeks with many of my patients there is this sort of interplay of you know what i need in order to function what my feelings are telling me what my what my needs are like eating and sleeping and needs but so are self-care so are taking feelings seriously how to balance that with the guilt, uh, uh, many people, you know, using that word to describe what then happens when you do take your needs seriously, knowing that other people are suffering a great deal. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I, I hope that's something we, we can come to today, yeah, that kind absolutely. of balance uh, of managing both. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, you, you remind me of a, a woman that I interviewed for my podcast before who, her name was Solly, and she had a, a child with ADHD and she also is a teacher with children with additional needs and and I think she always said that that she advises parents to look after themselves but they do feel guilty because they think you know how can I go to a spa day and you know indulge myself when I know my child is struggling and actually she's of the view that you, you cannot serve others unless you look after yourself so I think that's a really important message to kind of bear in mind in the current climate let's talk about something that you mentioned just now when you kind of introduced yourself this idea of fear because I think beyond the horrors that have actually happened and the trauma and the bereavement that people are experiencing there is a fear that you know that's kind of the point of terrorism is to spread this fear but it is a real emotion it is now kind of being spread well beyond the center of the eye of the storm or whatever you want to say like a lot of people that I speak to now are fearful. Every news article you read or radio program you hear, they're, they're scary messages. What's your advice in how people can manage anxiety and fear, even if it is, I can't remember the word you used, but sort of not, not a real danger, you know, no one's gonna come mm. knocking at your door necessarily where you're sat, but there's a fear there. How, how do you advise people to manage that? So th I think the first, um point i think that comes to my mind is um the english i think like most other languages is very slippery like um you can say fear and i think i might understand one thing by that word another person might understand a different thing and, and so on so in both for myself and in my clinical work i always want to check what are we talking about uh, like almost to the point of pedantry and in my mind please, please let me know how, how this comes across or how this this makes sense to you but um i tend to think of um 
fear as being an internal emotional reaction to a direct current threat. So if I step out into the street and suddenly I look up and there's a bus coming towards me, there's a massive jolt uh, through my uh, nervous system uh, to get me out of danger. So, so that's fear, direct current threat. When there isn't a bus zooming towards you and you experience the same jolt or you know, raised heart rate, breathing uh, faster, maybe tightness in the chest, um, stomach cramps or butterflies, uh, going right up to high levels of, uh, of, of what we call anxiety, okay? It's the same kinds of symptoms, but there's no current danger in front of us then the, the, the trigger must be internal, okay? Maybe, maybe we've looked on the outside and seen uh, like a news report, say, or we've just had a thought, but the, 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 almost like the threat comes from inside then, the, the sign, the signal. Then we've got a different scenario. You can't take the threat away or go to safety if you're feeling scared while you know, quietly in your, fr in, your, in your room, say. So... This is a really important, I think, starting point. And the, the first is fear. It's current external actual threat in front of me. The second is anxiety. Okay, same symptoms, right? Very important, especially in terms of working with trauma, because then the question is, well, am I in danger or am I getting signals that I'm in danger, even though there's no external threat now, okay? Um, so that's my, my first sort of thought about the I suppose, classification of this stuff, because it's just so confusing otherwise. There's so many things happening inside of all of us moment to moment. I certainly find it helpful to try to be a bit clearer on, you know, have I got apples or pears here in front of me? Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Okay. The, then if we're talking about anxiety, I'm going to try and keep this to a mini lecture as short as possible. But I think it is worth uh, uh, trying to be clear on, and then you know everybody can decide what, what they think about this. Anxiety uh, and fear as well, but I think we're mainly talking about anxiety here, aren't we, today? When people are exposed to distressing images, stories, or headlines, or news that they aren't direct when they aren't directly in the line of, uh, of danger themselves. Um, as in, in terms of anxiety, these signals of things happening inside the body that there's a threat somewhere. Uh, I think of it as like um, uh, like a three-story building. Uh, on the ground floor, it's the lowest levels of anxiety, so you'd be very relaxed and calm. You know, the, almost like the stereotype of someone who's just come out of a out of a spa, as you mentioned before, out of a mindfulness session. Uh, not probably just a, a, a puddle on the floor with no tension in their bodies. You have to have a little bit to be sitting upright, but, uh, but very relaxed. Then on the first floor, the first level, as anxiety starts to rise inside of us, you, people start having experiences, I, I mentioned before, like a, maybe a tightness in the chest, like a belt over your chest. It's hard to breathe in and it's difficult to take the full breath. There's a bit of resistance. That's tension in the muscles of, of uh, breathing that, that, that cause that. Or the heart may be a bit faster, breathing more shallow. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a few, uh, there's a range of symptoms. I won't, I won't go through all of them now. It's what often gets called the fight-flight response. You know, it gets you ready, pumped, primed for action, characterized by yeah, increased respiratory rate and, and muscular tension. The next level 
if anxiety goes higher, and this can happen very quickly, to microseconds sometimes, if it goes higher, the second story of this building, it starts going into other bits of the body, almost like there's not enough capacity left in the muscles and the lungs and the heart to contain all of that pumping anxiety. Then systems like our gastrointestinal system get get engaged and pulled online, almost like sort of pour anxiety into them. And that's when we start getting symptoms like um, butterflies in the stomach or nausea or acid reflux, urge to go to the loo to do whatever, whether or not you actually need to say pee, but just that sort of bladder urgency. Um, similarly, headache, uh, which can be to do with change in the the vasodilation of the tiny little capillaries in the brain um, at those higher anxiety levels. Then on the third floor of this building, the, the highest level of anxiety, it starts to affect our thinking and our perception. So if you've ever felt confused or, or full of thoughts that are racing, or your mind just suddenly goes empty and blank, uh, uh, or sometimes people have vision differences, like spots in their field of vision, tunnel vision, which is not necessarily a complete blackness around the uh, the outside of the centre, but something sort of strange, changed perception, uh, uh, where it, the, only the very focal point of vision is clear, and the rest is quite blurry, or um, changes to hearing. Um, so ringing in the ears, uh, finding it more hard to hear. The third floor, the third level of anxiety symptoms really affects thinking and perception. And I think most people would recognise some of these at some point in their life. Often people say it's when they have to stand up and speak in public, uh, the, the, you know, the, the butterflies in, in the stomach, harder to think, uh, those kinds of, uh, of symptoms. The reason I've made this quite long preamble is that um, the type of anxiety symptoms we're experiencing, the, the, which story we're on of that, of that building, uh, has an impact on what should we do to regulate anxiety. And by regulate, I mean respond to it in a way that brings it down one level. Now, like in a building, you would not hopefully try to jump from the third story down to the ground floor. You'd have to take one staircase at a time. Okay, so in this, in this level, I'll, I'll, if we go back to the, the top floor and we'll work our way down, someone who's experiencing um, issues with their thinking, changes to their perception, or gastrointestinal problems, the kinds of things I was mentioning in the second story, um, they don't need to do breathing relaxation because that works with the first floor, the first story where, where people are tense. Um, if you're experiencing those things, the, the, the way to get down to the first floor is first you need to get tense, right? Then you can relax going down to the ground floor. So in my clinic, when people have high anxiety, uh, I say to them, I demonstrate, look, I'm going to do a wall sit and I get up off my chair and I have to kick the rug out of the way a bit so I don't slip. And I lean against the wall, dropping down so that my um, my thighs, my upper legs are parallel to the ground and then my lower legs, my, my calves and shins are vertical. It's quite difficult. It's quite demanding. It really involves you tensing a lot of muscles. It's the kind of thing that uh, I think the meaner personal trainers get people to do maybe as well. Right? It's hard work. What it does is it forces you to use the, like, the biggest muscles in your body, your backside especially, and almost like drain the reservoir of anxiety that's gone into your head or into your stomach back into the muscles. Right, and it's almost like a hydraulic metaphor here, lowering the level of anxiety elsewhere in the body by creating more capacity for it in those very big, tensed muscles. 
Then once you've drained anxiety down, i.e. you've come down from the, the third or second floor to the first floor of tension, which at other times you wouldn't want. If you're relaxed, you wouldn't want to get tense. But if you've been experiencing uh, high anxiety symptoms, this is actually an improvement. Then once you're more tense, then you can relax by just standing up will relax your bodies and almost like, it's almost like the muscular equivalent of breathing out uh, uh, relaxing uh, and then maybe uh, doing some breathing exercises uh, doing some mindfulness something that will lower anxiety further i just this this is just in my experience such a big important um difference to sort of add in that anxiety is not only breathing fast and feeling tense or jumpy or fidgety or lots of us, our shoulders rise up really high almost to meet our ears and we realize we're tense and then we can lower them and feel better. There's another group of anxiety symptoms that affect, yeah, as I said, thinking and, and perception and, and the, the sort of the, the other organs inside of us, the ones we can't sort of feel directly, except say if the stomach is, is producing too much acid, then we need to use tension first to, to drain anxiety out. Okay. I think it's really, really helpful to have that theory as a backdrop, actually. So thank you for explaining that so clearly. Um, I, I was just thinking as you were describing that, that this is usually the anxiety that you'd address in your clinic where we're talking in, you know, in inverted commas, peacetime. Hmm. Um, and a, very, a variety of things could be making a person anxious. At the moment, the situation in, you know, in Israel, in Gaza, it's it's tense, it's scary for reasons that are, are obvious. You know, they, these aren't kind of underlying anxieties, these are clear. And then as you get further away from that epicenter, some of the race hate that people are experiencing around the world is real as well. But then there are some panics that are probably less immediate and that are more abstract, I suppose, that kind of stem from this. So. Does it matter to distinguish whether it's a real threat? I mean, clearly, you know, you gave the example of a bus, but, hmm. you know, a real threat in terms of like, you know, there is heightened security and you can't travel to some places and um, sort of what makes you anxious in yourself anyway, that's just not necessarily something tangible. Does it matter? How, how can this be applied for people that are experiencing different levels of anxiety for different reasons at the moment? I, I think that's, an, that's another good question. I, I think, again, um, the starting point is always going to be in, inside of me, or inside of you, inside of anyone listening, sort of starting focusing in on themselves. So in a, in a way, I, I, I promise I will try and answer it, but let's just see where we get to. Because the starting point has to be myself, right? My own eye internalized checking out what is happening, which is a big ask for many of us. Like, lots of us have been brought up to focus more on the outside. That comes first. And then only if your anxiety gets to really sky high levels should you take care of that. So I mean, that, that's that's one aspect of this, I think. Um, but that sort of focus on the inside. Now, my my sense is, um, if we're starting off with um, ex traumatic exposure, so seeing those very distressing headlines, seeing distressing images or, or video, um, what what comes to my mind is. That is an emotional experience. Okay. We so will that's have feelings. Yeah. Uh, we'll come to it. We'll bring anxiety in, right? Mm. But you see, my sense is if someone walked up to me in the street and suddenly shoved in my face a photograph of a dead child, I would have an emotional reaction. 
right? Now, everyone's different, but my sense is that the image is terrible, but why are you shoving this in my face without asking me first or even saying hello? Hello, could I please show you something that's very distressing? I want to warn you now. Do I have your consent to expose you to this trauma, traumatic imagery? The reason I'm, I'm, I think this example is coming to mind is I think so many of us have suddenly been confronted by um, distressing images or headlines uh, in the past week or so with no warning. This is coming up a lot in, in my work and my in, you know, friends, I think, are saying the same. Um, so even before we get to what the image is or what the headline is or what the uh, news story is, there's something about the way in which we're confronted with it, I think. Mm. And I think one of the great tragedies at the moment is that after such a violation of so many people's even, you know, physical integrity, their right to life and safety, that we could be violating each other by sending without warnings some very distressing imagery, the kind that we would never normally share. You know, some very good people uh, uh, with good hearts, with good intentions, accidentally re-traumatizing people by, by this. The, there's one of the aspects of what makes trauma so painful, um, whether or not that person is there in danger at the time in that room or street, or whether they're seeing it, it's the fact that we had no control over it. Okay, so this is something I, I take very seriously is this issue of consent, right? Adding in the, the what then happens inside of us, if someone came up to the street and sort of whack, you know, confronted me uh, with this, you know, whatever the image would be or the headline or the, the very painful experience, well, that might be a real experience in the world that's very important for us to face and to know about the way they do it violently towards me, I would have feelings about that. I think I would be angry. And in my view, everyone can make their own decision, but in my view, that would make sense why I would feel the emotion of anger, okay? Then, if I was aware of it, like, don't do that to me, please. please. Can we talk about this? But I'd much rather you'd ask me if it's okay to show me X, Y, Z. Um, then I'd know I was angry. I would just feel angry and hopefully I would just be able to you know, turn it into the kind of sentence I just said asking for, you know, in a respectful way, you know, please don't cross that boundary. Do you see that there's that word boundaries coming up again right? to, to, to please them interpersonally. However, very often in life, it isn't as, you know, I try to make that example quite clear and vivid, but very often it's not like that. It's just something popping up on our screen or something we hear on a news report right? that's very, very sad or very, very distressing. Um, then, it might not be as obvious somebody is um, exposing me to this very distressing thing. Yeah. Then we can have the kind of scenario where under the surface, on one level, part of us, I mean, probably not going to like it. Even if we decide we're not going to look away, even if we think it's important, there's probably going to be some emotional reaction, even to the bit being confronted with this story, imagery, headline. The, 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 the realm in which I work in, in my clinical work, and I think makes sense in day-to-day -day life generally, is well, what's going on in, emotionally under the surface for me to make sense of my reaction then? Because if you, if, you, if you see something distressing and then you feel anxious, it doesn't make sense on its own, right? I'm not in danger. Why am, why am I tense inside? Why is my stomach feeling uh, fluttery with butterflies? The, the parts of the picture we have to add in, going from the exposure, the, the trigger, 
to feeling anxiety in that kind of scenario is oh I, I almost like want to insert another step between those two it's what's happening emotionally under the surface now i've just used anger as an example to try to make sense of what someone might be looking at something um end up feeling anxious but this because they were confronted by it without being asked part of the picture might be oh that doesn't feel good this uh, th there's something about the non-consent here that makes me angry could be happening very fast out of consciousness under the surface now that's the kind of thing that i make sense of with patients and to understand my own reactions sometimes it similarly it might be sadness there's just something so sad now this might be maybe more close to consciousness i think lots of people are aware of feeling very sad at the moment but even sadness itself can make us anxious now sometimes this makes sense to people sometimes it really it feels like quite an alien concept but this is important because before we were talking about how to directly regulate anxiety, how to tense up and, and then re relax, say. But the biggest regulator of anxiety is addressing the emotions underneath it that trigger anxiety, okay? Many of us were brought up in households where perhaps there was lots of love. Maybe there was much uh, affection, warmth even. But certainly in, I'd say in uh, Anglo families, I'll, I'll stick to that for now, not necessarily the biggest focus on emotion in the world. Uh, like quite a lot of uh, keep calm and carry on or keep on trucking. Not cruel at all, but just not very focused on, on, on uh, how someone's feeling at the moment, how a child is feeling, uh, you know, prioritizing that. So many of us, uh, therefore, inherit a tendency to not pay huge amounts of attention to emotion, moment to moment at least, until it sort of boils over into lots of anger or very deep, overwhelming sadness or lots of anxiety, which these emotions trigger. Now, if, if you grow up in a setting where actually let's just not talk about that, it's sort of the principle, it might not ever even be said, but you're human, you're full of all these troublesome feelings. I'm four, I'm furious I can't have my yogurt. I want another yogurt. Uh, Four-year-olds tend to tell us that they're angry. But somewhere along the way, they turn into seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 43-year-olds, me, for example, who've learned, don't shout at the table. Now, that's good, right? It's good we don't wave our spoons around angrily when we don't get what we want. But the, there's this force that pushes conscious feelings feelings that don't seem very acceptable or they're a bit troublesome for a caregiver or maybe uh, mom or dad look exhausted and I, I as a child I sort of sense like don't push it right and that's this process which no one means to do it's nobody's fault but it just sort of pushes back down below the level of conscious awareness actually the uh, all the feelings coming up like the, almost like the our corner perspective on the world be it being in our you know in our own corner then those feelings start to go out of consciousness if that happens a lot if it happens again and again and again just just to be able to sort of function it'd be, it'd be really difficult to always be angry or be difficult to always be sad with a caregiver who say would really struggle to to react or maybe then be overwhelmed by their own emotions i'm making this sound very black and white like it's either or, either there's full rainbows of feelings and, uh, and feelings being shared or none. Of course, it's not that black and white. And most people will be somewhere in the middle. Uh, and I suppose that's why people 
can identify there's something not right inside me. I'm not feeling good. I want to do something about it, but it's hard to name it. Right, that would be that sort of halfway knowing something's up, but it's hard to put my finger on it. And I think the the really important um, element of this to to add in is between a trigger of a thought or a memory or somebody saying something or whatever we see on social media or news online and ending up say anxious is in between this middle step of emotion there was emotion there somewhere and it's not it's not necessarily easy to access but it does just in terms of making sense of how come i'm ending up feeling dizzy or tense or sh uh, short of breath it's a good question to ask like well how do i feel that as i'm exposed to this 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 experience i think that's really helpful i think what you've just to kind of play back what I've understood from what you're saying is there's first of all the element of identifying those physiological reactions how your body is reacting when you say to yourself you feel anxious and sort of try to understand what that anxiety really is and, and put a name to it but also identifying that there is that level of emotion that that sits aside or alongside the anxiety I think that's really helpful and and you touched on the idea of sadness and I, I really want to go on to that as well because I think that is a feeling that I know a lot of people at the moment are really consumed by. Just bringing this back to the idea of finding your balance, when you are experiencing such levels of anxiety, um, how do you find your balance? How do you function with everything else going on in your life that you need to do, both at work and, uh, and other things? What's your advice to people to find their balance, to manage their anxiety in such a way that they could, they can continue to function? Like what advice could we take particularly right now with all degrees of anxiety? I mean, I know it's a big, a big question. <laughs> I know you can't solve everybody's problems, yeah. but you know, is there anything practical that you think people could take away and, and help to manage mm. themselves a little bit? Well, I think you probably won't be surprised to know that I'm one of those many maddening, frustrating therapists who who immediately, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, pull back when asked to give advice. Um, uh, maybe it's just the word, but I will talk about what I found helpful and what my patients seem to okay. found helpful. And, then it, and maybe this is even my first point in this response. I don't want to sit here and say, do do this, this and this. Yeah, The, the anxiety uh, building with different stories, I, I was clear on because we know from physiological research, that's how humans operate. Similarly with emotion, that's just how we operate. But then what people decide to do in response is completely up to them. It's a, it's a fundamental, like, not just as a therapist, but as a value of myself, each of us is the sovereign of our own realm, of our own internal world, and we get to decide what we do uh, with that, with our feelings, with our anxiety. So, you know, at the moment, if, if someone doesn't want to do relaxation, and the, 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 I mean, they'll be maybe more tense, they'll be more anxious, that is completely within their realm to decide. Uh, and I think it's just so important that no one gets the message that they're doing anything wrong. If they're struggling, if it's too difficult to apply any of the things we're talking about today, I think that sort of position of total acceptance of what everyone is or isn't able to do and what they do or don't decide to do in response to, 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 to say struggling at the moment is just so important because otherwise it can just be yet another thing we can feel bad about. Like, I'm failing to do relaxation properly now, or I should be more X, Y, or Z. Of course, on the other hand, if we don't take care of our anxiety, there will be consequences. Huh? That's just reality. But I think what I'm trying to stress is that you know, we can also make life worse for ourselves by adding in judgment. And I would really hate it if 
if, um, if that kind of message came across from our conversation today. There isn't a right way that people should be handling themselves and responding to, to difficult times. Uh, and there, there isn't a right way and there isn't a wrong way. Oh. That said, you know, I do want to have my cake and eat it. There do seem to be some principles and some ideas that are helpful to then see, well, how do they apply to me if I want to apply them? Um, and yeah, that first one, I think, is that kind of kindness, non-judgment, acceptance, which is so easy to say. Uh, and I spend entire therapies working with people to help promote and encourage and develop their, their ability to be kind, accepting, non-judgmental with themselves. But I think what that's, that looks like at the moment, it certainly has looked like in my clinic in the past uh, couple of weeks, is um, I've tended to uh, begin sessions, especially just after the, the attacks, with saying something like, I am completely agnostic, I'm totally open-minded today about whether or not we should do any psychotherapy heavy lifting whether we should do anything intense and in fact i'm always open-minded i don't know what would be best for you you get to decide that but just sort of taking that pressure off so that there's no expectation i must do this thing which is just as therapy it can just as much apply to going to the gym like we were, we were, we were hinting at before going for a walk responding to all the messages from people that have been checking in with you they might be good things to do in theory you know, perhaps the gods of exercise and of psychotherapy would be happy with us if we did them. But the question of, is this what I want right now? Is this what I need? Is this what I'm capable of? Is totally separate. Right? And I think this is just so important, both in my clinic room and outside of it for, for me and, and I think many other people, is that how do you respond to the sense of, well, that's a good idea in theory, but how does that actually, um, how, how would it affect me now? Okay, so that's the first part. Um, the second part, which I think uh, brings us on to, and so maybe connects a few things we've been talking about today, is how do we respond to this message? It would be better if you do X. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate being bossed around. I hate being told what to do. Uh, I try not to be contrary and do the opposite, but there's definitely a, a part of me that's like, you know, I'd rather I'd rather be cold than told to wear my coat. You know, it's like that sort of... <laughs> four-year-old, uh, you know, it's a, it's a rebellious energy. You know, don't boss me around. And I think um, uh, advice, uh, self-help, and therapy as well, can really trigger this part of us that says, oh, don't push me around. Huh? And, and in a way, almost accidentally work against us. Okay, yeah. this is just one small idea I want to add in is like, mm -hmm. how do you receive and experience the message, whether it's from someone else or from your own caring voice inside? You say, well, you really should go and do some mindfulness now because you know, that would be a good thing to do and other people are doing it. You know, I think this helps shed light on how come we don't do these things often. And mm -hmm. even though you know it's a good idea. And one aspect of this, I'm not saying it's the only reason why, one aspect of it is the sort of don't push me or don't tell me what to do. Mm. Yeah, okay. I think that's really helpful also in terms of how you can support your loved ones at this time as well. Because I know the inclination is to jump in with a fix or a suggestion and and actually what you're saying, the, the kind of reaction you're describing of asking that person what they need or how they're feeling rather than jumping in with a suggestion of, you know, try this mindfulness, this might help you. You know, that could also be a more sensitive way to approach supporting people. 
People can't see, but I'm nodding my head so much. (laughs) I totally agree. But but please, can we also go back to principle one, the idea of gentleness and giving Mm. ourselves a break? Because when we ourselves are under immense pressure, all these external stresses and all these feelings being stirred up inside and maybe anxiety being triggered by all this emotional flux inside of us, that might be exactly the time when we can least do it. So, you know, I would also really advocate, if if I can, a kind of self-acceptance of, well, maybe I won't be able to, uh, and then not becoming harsh with ourselves if we do blurt out. Well, you know, do some meditation or something. It's not ideal, we know this, but Um, we could also become harsh with ourselves, couldn't we, even in something that's a good idea. I think your point there just about self-compassion is really helpful, because I think there are layers here of, um, I don't know if you'd describe as survivor's guilt necessarily but you know people that aren't so much affected directly that want to help people they know that are even closer directed and they probably feel bad because somebody else is in a worse situation than them and so then you know you're constantly trying to be helpful I suppose but also recognizing you need to look after yourself I guess from what you're saying to kind of again bring it back to the sense of balance like how do you kind of maintain your sanity is sort of press pause on all of those judgments and those noises and just think well, look after yourself. What do you need in your mind before you reach out to somebody else? And then when you reach out to them, don't reach out to them thinking what you think they might need, but reach out to them asking them what they feel they might need. Yeah, or absolutely, or the sort of the tone of saying, well, I wonder if, like wonder, and also for parents with children, I wonder if you might be feeling mm. kind of scared at the moment or like you just, it's putting stuff out there as a yeah. hunch or a hypothesis or a question, it, it's, you know, it's much less um, in your face, you know, yeah. and it's also less demanding, I think. And many of us don't like being put on the spot either. If you can, you know, it might be the time it's most difficult to do so. But you did, you, you just made me think of that, um, you know, take care of yourself first. The example I think I almost always use with with my patients, I think it's, it's possibly one of the first things you get taught, uh, I certainly was, clinical psychology training as a you know, baby psychologist always it's what they say on airplanes right always uh, put on your own uh, oxygen mask before helping others with theirs uh, it's the same principle if you if you're struggling to take care of yourself it's going to be harder to take care of others doesn't mean you you of course don't try to uh, give up but that in terms of prioritizing ourselves mm-hmm. first only I can regulate my anxiety. No one else can really. They can give advice. Only I can look inside and find out what my feelings are, are triggering anxiety. No one else can. So in terms of that, that, that sort of sovereignty of ourselves, that we all have the right to decide how we respond to our emotions, thoughts, feelings, anxiety, values, priorities. At the same time, the other side of the coin is the responsibility is with us right, to, to, to do so. following the terrorist attack on Israel, which took place on the 7th of October, 2023, just a few weeks before the time of this recording. As such, this episode is longer than usual episodes, as I've tried to keep the editing process to a minimum in order to publish it as quickly as possible. My guest today is the clinical psychologist and psychotherapist, Dr. Ian Moran, who kindly agreed at short notice to be interviewed to share his insights into how to find balance in the current situation 
when everything feels off kilter. It's no wild spoiler alert to say that towards the end of the recording, despite my efforts to direct questions towards practical advice and guidance, Ian shares the weighty perspective that sometimes you just have to accept that there is no balance, that it's okay not to feel okay. Another exception to this podcast episode is the inclusion of my post-interview conversation with Ian. As I often do with my interviewees, after we finish recording, we stay online for a bit of a download on how the conversation felt for each of us. With Ian, once we finished recording and went back online to discuss how we felt about our conversation, he asked me to keep recording and you can listen to why and the content of this part of our conversation at the very end. In the next part of this podcast episode, Ian goes on to share his personal and professional experience of guilt, an emotion that often comes up in the mix when talking about work-life balance. Where is its place in the pursuit of balance during war, when it competes with other strong emotions such as anger, helplessness and grief? Let's get back to the episode and listen to what Ian has to say next. I think that that does bring us on to uh, we mentioned before about about guilt and you were just alluding to, and I think that you know at the moment I I felt um, very mixed about um, addressing uh, guilt because it's such a common theme for everyone, and when something becomes really almost like communal, so common that so many people are experiencing it i at least just want to pause before leaping in there and say well let's address this as a, as a clinical problem uh, or signing up to if, if someone someone asks my help with it and I, I suppose i just want to put in the context of yes it's difficult to um for many of us to, to focus on our own well-being and something you know as as extravagant as taking a hotel suite or making sure we have the time to go and go to that spa or that gym or or buying something nice that some moisturizers and it makes us feel good or a smelly candle um i i think it's false to to to, to if i didn't recognize that does seem quite common uh, but what i think is vitally again it's almost a bit like the um you know how using the word fear how we're using the word anxiety similarly with guilt with with guilt it's i think it can be really helpful to check check in with ourselves right now am i doing something that is just against my values that's against my moral framework for myself if there's if if it if it offends us and our ethics we're never going to feel good about it you know that's what guilt's for to stop us doing things that are uh, against our own morals and harmful of somebody else right It'll be something specific, it'll be an act or, or the failure to act that's clearly against our own values. The example, again, I use with my patients uh, for my own life. Um, you, you'll hear there's only a few things I share, but uh, this, these, these seem to be the important ones just to, to show I also you know, have this emotion. When I was about 10, um, I'd really fallen out with our Jack Russell Terrier, Holly, who was an amazing dog, but I can't remember what it was. I lost my temper with her and picked up, there was a walking stick nearby, and I was sort of like pushing her away with poking her and she bit the stick and I pushed. And it went into the soft palate of her throat and hurt her. Not permanently, not uh, uh, no, no, no blood, but I knew I'd hurt her. Even as I talk about it now, I feel guilty. Huh? That is healthy. 
it's it, I, it, I wish I hadn't done it, but I did. I can only face my feelings of guilt about it. And when I did so, I immediately at the time, a 10 year old, wanted to make amends. This is the other big clue that it's definitely healthy guilt. Because, you know, I put the stick down, I, I calmed her down, that hand gesture, both hands in the air, lowering them, sort of easy, easy. And I changed, you know, I calmed myself down and I did say sorry. I think I cried even because it was so painful to have hurt another being. And then, you know, how do dogs um, show everything's all right? She, she wagged her tail and then we, you know, I stroked her and then we, 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 we healed that rupture. Right. That's what guilt is also designed to do, to tell me I've done something that's damaging to my view of myself and my relationship with someone else, including pets. And now what can I do to make amends? I, I can say I'm sorry. I can show, uh, you know, with, you know, with an animal, it's perhaps stroking is more likely, right, than, than, than explaining. Um, and then it could end. There was a way for it to be over. Right? And now, you know, when I tell the story, I just have the echo of, of, the, of the guilt. It's there in my mind. It's a salutary lesson. You know? uh, and I, you know, I never did it again. That's healthy guilt. Unhealthy guilt is, it, it, it's a really important concept. It's the sense you're bad. You're doing or not doing something. But it's quite, it can be quite hard to put your finger, finger on, well, what, what is it that I've done wrong? You just sort of feel, have this sense of being bad. It's quite hard to make amends because there isn't such a clear thing. I'm doing. You know, what, what should I do? Go and get on a flight and go and suffer? No, like that. You know, that might not make sense. For example, if I'm an aid worker or say a paramedic and I'm sitting with my feet up when I should be helping others and I've promised I will, that would be different, right? But you know, I, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for a career as a combat soldier. I have, to, I have to face my feelings about not being able to help, right? But in that scenario, you know, I don't experience personally internal sense of guilt of not doing something that I, I view that I should be doing or, uh, or doing something that I view I shouldn't be, okay? I think this is so important, this distinction, because it also applies in day-to-day -day life, ending up sensing that you're bad in some way, almost as if the eyes that are judging you are from the outside like society wouldn't like it, or someone we grew up with wouldn't like it, maybe, versus with my own eyes, if I look at myself. No, I, actually, I, realize it's, I don't feel great about it, but it's defensible. I don't view that everyone should get on a plane and go and put themselves in danger. And I think that's often a good litmus test, is to say, well, what would I want for other people? Because very often we're harsher with ourselves than we are with everyone else. Like, no, I don't think everyone else should be in Gaza or in Israel right now. I th I'm glad that others uh, are in safety, terrible for everyone who isn't, but I'm glad that others are in safety and I'm glad that I am, right? I think that's just important, that, that distinction between the two, because yeah. unhealthy guilt can never be assuaged. You can't make it better because yeah. it's external judgment, right? These, these, these eyes we all have inside of us that can judge us. Yeah, and I guess in reality, it's unconstructive because you could be doing something else with that energy or your time oh. spent you know, making yourself miserable, feeling exactly, like that. exactly, and that's the that's the imagery I have mm. of um, with with guilt, healthy or unhealthy, or guilt tripping, maybe we should call it. I think that might mm. be that that's how, that resonates more. With guilt, it's like you see someone who's fallen down by the side of the road, or maybe you kick them, but anyway, they're they're fallen and bleeding. You rush forward to help, or you certainly experience the urge to do so. Then you can decide. You know, is it safe? Uh, uh, can I help? 
But with uh, with guilt tripping, it's like someone's fallen down by the road bleeding, and we're standing there whipping ourselves over our shoulder, hurting ourselves mm. in a way almost like no one gets helped by that. And that's that's another good way to check out. Hang on, it, who, who's being helped here and who's being harmed? Where's the focus of my help? Yeah. Where's the focus of my energies? It's it's really useful because I think so many people I've spoken to over the last week or two do feel that sense of helplessness. Um, and so that's a useful reminder. Um, I don't think we could avoid this during this episode. I don't think we can avoid the issue of grief. We've talked a bit about sadness. Um, the losses have already been colossal. Um, I've covered in previous episodes the idea of finding your balance when you're grieving. This is sort of grief to another level because there's shock and there's you know horror as well as loss um again you know i can't expect you to to advise everybody on this but i guess again kind of bringing it back to the idea of finding your balance getting through your day when you're experiencing that level of grief however close it is to you and however directly it impacts your life what what's your take on that what what have you seen before in your clinic that you think could be helpful for people well, again, I think you've, in a way, almost answered the question already with, with the, you know, like the way you're thinking, it's not only grief, uh, like there's, there's shock and anger and maybe other feelings as well, and maybe uh, healthy guilt if there's something we haven't done or, or guilt tripping. So I think that's the first point is it's very, it would be very unusual if, if anyone had only one feeling trying to get clear on on what's happening inside of us is itself a challenge uh, but then when we're more clear actually I, I do know I'm just feeling very sad I, I had I, I saw that very sad headline well there, I suppose there are different ways to react to this but the, the one that came to my mind actually it happened to me uh, um, last week where um, I saw something very sad um, I was aware of the situation I was at the time. I didn't want to um, uh, let all of that sadness flow through. I, you know, it wasn't the time to be uh, focused on on me, and, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to, to cry at that time. Um, but I really knew I was going to need to to carry on with the rest of my of my my clinic day. Um, so I um, I could kind of I logged it. I registered. I'm going to need to do this right now. I'm not going there. Right. And I, I there's sort of almost like a mantra. I think sometimes it can come across as if there is in therapy. It's like always face your feelings, always focus on them. But I have no problem with people using defences. I did it in uh, that time uh, last week. I didn't want to have feelings then. Uh, I knew I would come back to them, but I didn't want them to take the foreground. I would do so later. Right. And by defences, I mean anything that enables us to not feel our feelings. Uh, and even just sort of cutting off is a defence. Not going to go there. Okay, um, that could be a whole separate podcast episode, by the way, uh, about defences. I won't go. Uh, I'll bring you back to that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, oh, I'd love to, please. Um, but the, this, you know, it's about timing. It's about personal sovereignty. I just, I'm not going to do it now. Now, if we chronically all the time cut off from our emotions and never go there, well, then there will be problems. It will tend to, you know build up, spill over into anxiety, say, or um, come back against us as depression, that there will be a price to pay if we systematically 
cut off, for example, from emotions, or become very intellectual and analysing. It's another way many of us cope with, with uh, difficult uh, situations and difficult feelings. If only I can get my head around this, if I can think and understand and know enough, then I'll feel better. Well, you will consciously, you will, your intellect will feel better, but it won't address the emotions, okay? So going back to that scenario, I just, you know, as, as soon as that, my meeting had ended, I, I sent a text to my husband saying, please come back. I'm okay, but I need you to come back. He was, he was out, uh, out and about in our hotel room. And I knew I needed someone else to be there to be able to cry, to be able to, to grieve uh, this very sad uh, information. Um, and I even uh, slightly rearranged my clinic to give myself some 15 minutes more, um, which I would never normally do. But as in these circumstances, in this very unusual scenario, it, you know, it was totally made sense. Um, and I was able to weep, um, which adds in another point, actually. Um, as soon as my husband walked through the door almost, I'd sort of been holding uh, on to it. Like, okay, now's the time. Now I'm not alone. And I think that it, that brings us on to, I think, a really important point. Now, for some people, um, say, crying alone or feeling strong feelings alone, it's maybe what works best for them, or maybe it's even what they learn to do. Uh, during their life. There's quite a lot of evidence, experience that says actually feelings that um, we can sort of process them, face them, almost digest them even more powerfully and less painful if we don't have to do it on our own. And of course that's kind of what my, my, my job is. Similarly others around us though, there's something about being able to share this rise in emotion, whether it's grief, sadness, uh, they're really interchangeable in my mind. It's, it's the same urge to cry, to sob. Uh, if we do that alone, that's sort of adding something else and it could be painful. It, it, I'm not criticizing that, but if we can do it with someone else, there just seems to be something that, about it that's even more powerful, mm. which is one of the, 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 the great tragedies of traumatic exposure is when people have seen something awful. You know, you, you and I are, uh, are, are tiptoeing around the, using phrases, terrible headlines, very sad images, aren't we? Because neither of us wants to um, do exactly what I was saying before about violating someone without them asking to, to hear something yeah. distressing. But if, if we find ourselves doing that all the time, there can end up this big wall between us and other people, which is one of the other horrible outcomes of, uh, that, that can happen when there's, you know, just such deep sadness or facing some you know, horrible aspects of the world, if we end up alone. Uh, and I, and I, I think that's the sort of, again, it's a balancing act to come back to, you know, your, your theme of balance. How do I not end up all alone with this without violating someone else by almost like, vomiting up all of my feelings and vomiting up all of this information mm. on them and it almost being an assault in itself and again that's why i said you know i, I need to say something to you uh, to my husband it, it, it's distressing are you feeling okay to to hear it i think you will see or hear it anyway but is that is that all right because i could get through it if, you know if, if you if you if you're not feeling able to and and then we you know we did share it um i think that's important that kind of uh, moment not to if, if possible at least sometimes to not be alone with our feelings mm. um and the other part is with grief sadness um compassion i think that's all in the same uh domain of experience some of the um uh, rituals that we have in life to help us address grief can be really important now 
I I realized in 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 that day in that week I was going to have to use some of them in my mind to address how sad I felt for the, the, these these people who who died, and in my mind I I, I, I Started to think. Well, what do we do at funerals? You know, everyone has their own cultural experiences, but uh, there's a eulogy in, in the way I was brought up. Someone will say something, and what took me closer to how I was actually feeling about this is like, well, what would I say to those people or their family? Like, what, look, just for me, and uh, if if I it, just inside of my mind, and that was very powerful because that helped me get even close to what made me feel so sad. And I listened to some beautiful music, the kind of music that growing up I would have heard at funerals. And it was, you know, maybe it sounds eccentric, I'm fine if it does, but I sort of held my own kind of private funeral for for these individuals, because that's what I know to do. You know, that's how it was uh, structured for me. Yeah, I think there's so much there. Thank you, Ian. I think in terms of reaching out to your people, in inverted commas, again, you know, figuring out who who they are, who you can turn to, uh, to open up, but also kind of being kind to yourself, I suppose, in terms of when you open yourself up to those emotions and not. And when it comes to balancing the rest of your life when you're grieving and when you're feeling sad, that I suppose practically you do need to shut yourself off from those emotions at times to get dinner on the table you know for example that's really I think that's really useful and and I and I like your idea there also about customs and rituals all around grief um and around hope as well and prayer and I know you know it's the same for all religions so turning to those and finding comfort in them I suppose is is something that that may help some people find their balance that's really Mm. useful um we're running out of time. I, I know. Um, I know we, we sort of need to wrap up soon. I. I just before we do, I. I want to address just some of the, the practical obstacles in people's ways now of finding their balance. And and this is probably you know we've talked a lot about being distracted with emotions, I suppose, and and that like those feelings of guilt and anxiety that might be seeping into the day to day lives of people that aren't quite in the epicenter of the conflict. For those people whose lives have turned upside down in a way that everybody experienced pretty much during the COVID-19 pandemic, where things stopped, shops closed, schools Mm. closed, you know, for those people whose lives are kind of just totally transformed, like yourself, really, I suppose, what's, I don't I'm sorry to keep saying my what's your advice but you know how does a person find their balance amidst that kind of chaos and the uncertainty not knowing how long you'll find yourself in the situation what's the take on that you think that could be helpful for people that do find themselves like that as well as for those that want to support their loved ones that are in those situations well I think everything we've talked about so far could apply also you know whether someone's life is turned upside down especially the kindness, uh, or, or whether they're, you know, watching from afar. Um, but the the additional thing that comes to my mind is, um, you know, you say, how can people find balance? And I think sometimes it can make it worse when we expect something of ourselves that is just not possible or realistic at the moment. And I, I don't know, I, I sort of notice myself take a breath almost of relief, like as I, I don't know what, what mentally remove that pressure even for myself like to have to be okay 
I think that itself, again, it's almost like this healthy message, healthy idea. You know, it's such a lovely value that you constantly support in your podcast. But I think depending on, um, almost depending on which part of us, it's the kind part or it's the sort of more mean part, grabbing that sense of, you know, is, is it that I would want to be balanced now or is the message you should be balanced now? And I think we just have to be so careful that there's there's a, there's probably a limit to how well any of us can feel right now, a limit to how well anyone can manage that, uh, how we are. It doesn't mean we don't try, but I, I certainly found for myself sort of taking that pressure off to, you know, to have usual levels of functioning, to be as effective as usual. It almost ironically or perversely taking the pressure off to be balanced seems to actually make in my experience people more able to achieve it kind of by recognizing no i feel wretched at the moment i feel terrible there's a there's a limit how much i can do this ian there's a i'm not even sure i want to be here in therapy today Ian, i'm feeling incredibly guilty that, that i'm here ian you know so I'm, and my own you know, experiences to that. Recognising those things first seems really important and then we'll see what we can achieve. Uh, I, I think sort of setting the bar is like to try and achieve balance and I'm not saying that's that's how you're speaking but I think it can be translated into that in our minds, you know, with that more harsh part of us, the part that sort of pressurises and, and rushes and, uh, you know, expects things above our le level of capacity that we can manage. Um, I, I think it's, it's worth being careful with that, and then seeing what we can achieve. When I, I would just say, when I was at university, um, I had a very nice director of studies, my subject, and he said, um, when we first met us, he said, look, I know you guys can all manage to get you know, the thirds, like the, 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 the lower end of, uh, of attainment. Let's see what you can achieve. Let's see how you can do, you know, from, from that level up. And I heard of another college where someone had, had the same meeting with a director of studies, and this person said, if you aren't getting first, I'm going to have you in my office to explain why. And I said, oh my goodness, I'm so glad I'm not there, because that approach is so harsh judgmental and pressurizing i don't work well under that that kind of uh, regime but the idea well let's see what we can manage what we can achieve and in this you know for our well-being for our mental health i, I think is itself a healthier way to to approach uh, all of these good ideas these good techniques these good things that we could do you're right you're so right thank you um i, I feel emotional kind of processing what you're saying here because there is no balance now there is chaos yeah. you know there is danger and there is such tremendous sadness um and there's there's a lot of i don't know just the unbelievable inconceivable has happened yeah. in people's lives and yeah. and you know reminding ourselves or having you remind us that there is no balance and that's okay for now um, is really helpful, I think, because yeah. it's also, it comes back to that point of kindness to yourself, of just acknowledging, you know, when when it's not going to be possible to find your balance and, and let yourself kind of accept that, have, give yourself permission to feel unbalanced and hope that the time will come where you'll be able to find that balance again. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think that's such a good example. Like how lovely you can recognize that inside of yourself. And then you start to have an emotional reaction. Right now, you know, this isn't our therapy session, so I'm not going to push you for it. But I do think that's lovely you can recognize it. Then you can decide later, you know, is this important to me? As we here take the pressure off ourselves to be fine or to even be striving for being fine, let, let's see what you choose to, what you would want to manage and what you would want to uh, reach for. I think that that kind that gentleness with ourselves is just uh, the, for me it has to be the starting point yeah. and it isn't easy to do yeah. and that's what so that's one other idea I just want to make sure we cover before we end is the sense of um, again I want to have my cake and eat it uh, and I think this is a theme of multiple things can be true both that if we're all having many different experiences at the moment you know, one minute some very upsetting news or headline the next minute completely normal walking down the aisle in tesco's these things don't fit together they they can't be integrated like, sensibly because they're just so different and i think in ordinary life we tend to want to try and integrate everything to make it make sense right? it, it, it's, it's normally manageable or maybe life just isn't all that coherent and logical and we just sort of have to assume it is but I, I think in when you when there's these extremes of experience it just underlines actually no I can't integrate all of this it doesn't all fit together it's like uh, having the piece of 10 different jigsaws and there's been a theme of my um, work I think across very many people the past couple of weeks and myself is almost like accepting that that, that I, this doesn't make sense and i can't force it into kind of logic but the, the, this is having my cake and eat it but at the other uh, not going to the other extreme that there's no sense i can make uh that it, there isn't a uh, a bit of understanding i can have of myself or a bit of emotion i can process but i can't force all of these fragmented experiences all to hang together and, and make sense really seems to be um I think a common theme uh, for people at the moment. And again, with that kind of uh, element of kindness is like, you know, you're not doing anything wrong if the world does not make sense at the moment, but you can come back to if you're feeling able, if you have the resources, just to identify well, what's, how am I reacting and, and what's, what do I need to do right now to take care of this little corner of the world inside yes. of me? Thank you. Yeah, it's true. It's really helpful. And I think there are people out there who have to care for other people and thinking particularly like of, caregivers parents who probably don't have as much um what's the word I guess just capacity to do that for themselves when they have to care for other people they have to run their homes they have to maintain a good morale inside the home as well so the pressure is on them in that respect but I, I hope that this conversation has shone a light a little bit about the options that a person has to identify how they're feeling to accept how they're feeling to be kind to themselves as well and find those pockets of, um, you know, opportunities to let that emotion out with the people that they can turn to. And while they're not, while they're just functioning and getting on with the day, um, just know that that's okay and and not to rush, rush themselves to feel like all in one piece. Absolutely. And I think it would be remiss if we didn't um, uh, cover uh, before we end that, um, it is so normal to be distressed, to have problems sleeping after exposure to these very difficult events and news headlines, to um, be tense and on the alert. 
um, to maybe even uh, re-see things in our mind's eye, to, for our minds to kind of turn them over, um, to have you know, maybe people feel more down than usual. These experiences are so common after exposure to, to traumatic events or information or news that um, the, the, the diagnosis of longer-term problems with trauma is post-traumatic stress disorder. It's so normal to have these kinds of reactions that no one can get a diagnosis in the first four weeks if they're having those experiences, because so many people do. It's only if after that period of a month, if these symptoms are continuing, then we would start to think, well, is there something else going on here, something that might turn out to be longer term, that people might then wish to uh, address with a health professional. Um, but health professionals like, like me were actually uh, forbidden by the guidelines from giving diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in that first month, because it's so normal to struggle. And uh, of course, with children, it will look slightly different, especially younger children. It might look like some regression, so tending to go back developmentally, things they'd mastered that they might then struggle with. I mean, I think bedwetting is often the example comes to people's mind, being more clingy, having more nightmares, maybe not wanting to sleep on their own if they've, if they've progressed the stage of um, sleeping alone. Um, those kinds of things are so normal. So I think that's also really vital we add that context. Um, of uh, what, how ordinary it is and common it is to struggle uh, after these kinds of events. Yeah, I think I'm reminded of how we started this conversation as well, of just your description of the boundaries that you set for yourself in order to kind of maintain your well-being so that you can be there for other people. I think that's a really helpful reminder. Um, and yeah, people are in all sorts of situations now, so I suppose they'll be able to interpret that in their own way. Um, I usually wrap up my podcast by kind of coming back to my initial question of, you know, whether your work to life ratio is still the ratio that you think you would like. And, you know, if, if there's something you'd be aspiring to any differently. Um, I'll ask the question to you just to finish off just for completeness, but I'm not sure what to expect from your answer. Well, <laughs> I think it's the state you've been in throughout our meeting, and me too. <laughs> um, well, you know, actually, I think I started um, uh, saying it at the beginning, and I, di I didn't manage to complete the thought, um, so I'm glad you brought me back to it. I think I've learned something the past couple of weeks about um, standing up for what I need um, and being able to tune into, goodness, this is important for me. And even if no one else thinks it's important, this is important for me. And I think I want to hold on to that for myself, like taking that really seriously, because I, I've actually been operating in many ways, I think as well as usual, despite all of these changes. And I, I think you know, I'm going to reflect on this more, but I think taking my own needs seriously, that I was thinking about this the other day, speaking up for them, even if I then can't meet them or people around me cannot meet them, but even the speaking up for what I needed, me prioritizing it and then sharing that without becoming demanding uh, or you know, having tantrums or strobs, that itself made a difference, I'm, I'm realizing. Even if it then can't be met or I decide, no, I'm not going to uh, meet that need because something else is more important to me or to someone else. I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, go with that other uh, approach or that other priority. I think that's been really vital. And again, that, that's experience of taking my feelings seriously my feelings and my needs. Then the message inside me says, Ian, this is important, doesn't have to be ignored. Even if I can't necessarily have the thing that's good 
for me, or that I know would be would be better. So that's that's the one thing I think I'm going to really try and take away. Um, you know, hopefully, and life will return uh, more to normal. Uh, about the sort of speaking up myself inside myself, and then if I choose to share it with other people, and then if I choose to really hold out for it, I can, or at the very least. You know, my feelings uh, don't have to be squashed, pushed down, deprioritized, leaving me then you know, still full up of them. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think a lot of what people want or need right now are things that they won't be able to have. There's a lot of injustice. So it's really helpful, I think, to remind ourselves when we do have choices, what are the, what those choices are. Mm. Um, and And yeah, be clear on what we need for our own well-being so that we can help other people um thank you so much Ian I really I can't thank you enough for taking the time and not just the time but also giving of yourself in what is really I know a difficult time for you um and I think it's been so helpful just to listen to your viewpoint and your experience and I hope that other people will feel that too so thank you thank you it's been a very great pleasure Well, I'm really glad I suggested, you know, uh, it would be great if we could record this uh, additional segment just because I sense uh, often in my uh, career, let's say around trainings or staff meetings, the really important stuff or the even extra powerful stuff happens at the end of it when it's over. Um, I just really had that sense uh, because you said several things, but if it's okay to just pick up on what first one about being powerless I think that's so important I mean you mentioned it but I, I don't think I really picked up on it before this that there is so much outside of our control uh, and there's different ways to respond to it and one of them is I think as um, you know, you're, you're, you're saying is well this is in our control however big or small an act is it's something I can do uh, and I think that's extremely important in terms of taking back this experience of being powerless, because we're not entirely powerless, whether it's a podcast, whether it's addressing our own feelings, that is a mm. thing. Sitting down and feeling sad is an act. It's a thing we do. It's internal. Maybe uh, the world doesn't prioritise it very much, or when we were growing up, we didn't give the message that that is a thing, that is an act, but it is. Feeling, sitting on the sofa or feeling furious, that's a thing. It's, it's important. Um, and I think then the, the other thing you made me think of was um, when, you know, your, your modesty about, about the podcast. It put me in mind of this, again, it, maybe it's just a perspective, but of uh, acts, however big or small, they all matter. Uh, and I think I have the same approach, my thought about our, both our emotions and suffering. And it was especially about suffering I wanted to sort of um, um, not lose this idea of this sort of sense that, well, I'm only suffering a little bit and other people are suffering so much. And then that sense of feeling bad about it. And I think we were, we were touching on before, we didn't um, quite get to this point. Now, my view is that suffering is suffering. It, it's like if you have, you know, one um, gold coin, you don't throw it away just because it's only one gold coin. It's valuable, it's important. And I think mm. suffering is the same. Just because your suffering is not as great as, as another person's doesn't devalue, doesn't debase the, yeah. the, the importance of that. And I think that's so important because it's, I think many of us don't necessarily operate according to that, that, yeah. that, that sense. Some people suffering, because there's more of it, 
is more important than than others and i you know everyone will have their reaction to this but i i think my sense is that we can only really go forward on the basis that all suffering matters and you know i certainly want to reduce it everywhere for everyone not wait till other people have their suffering reduced first and then we can come to yours or yeah. mine yeah. Uh, that, that's important yeah it's true it's true i guess yeah i'm just i'm so grateful that you that you've come along with me to do it because it's just yeah that that feeling of helplessness it's you know mm-hmm. if there's anything you can do even just a small thing then that's what i'm trying to do really with, yeah. with this episode absolutely and i and in, in a way you know, i'm aware like lots of the ways I've been responding to you today mm. have been in that intellectual mode. You know, I've been giving mm. mini lectures. Mm. And another part of me really wishes I could respond to, you know, I'm, I'm not sensing it would be quite appropriate, but I think mean, maybe it kind of is up to you to make more space for your feeling right now. You know, that that's something, I know I'm not your therapist and I'm, I'm sort of putting it in brackets, yeah. you know, if we could, but I'm just aware of that, even just so we name, yeah. we show our working as we go along, you know, like you're taught to do in school, that I'm yeah. aware you, you, you're mentioning your feelings and I keep coming back at you with paragraphs of explanation. And in a way that doesn't feel very good to me. I know I've got your consent to be in this mm. mode by, by interviewing me, but I also just wanted to name that, yeah. you know, I experienced myself as a bit uncaring uh, no. actually when I don't give no. full to your feeling yeah at least name it yeah look, it's all it's all back to what you were saying really you know there's there's no value in feeling guilt feeling bad for how you talk or what you know what you do what you don't do it is what it is I hope that we represented everybody that that might be kind of that, that should be I suppose included or that may feel themselves included in in this conversation so I think a lot of people yeah. will find themselves caught up in the emotions of it for, you know, for multiple reasons and different scenarios. So I guess that's just my my worry that, you know, just make sure it's inclusive and it's a catch all. Um, but I I think you got I think you got there. Ian. I'm yeah, really, really you. grateful. And you must be I was about to say you must. I would encourage you to be kind to yourself and less harsh. Because I don't know, maybe I'm mishearing, but the sense of creating something that's a catch-all for everyone mm. seems to me like the self-assigned impossible task. Uh, it just it might be the best thing for you. It might be the way you operate and, and then respond best mm. to you. But trying to make something that, that achieves all things for all people, it sounds very lofty. Now, if it's a goal you're holding lightly for yourself and it's your aspiration, mm. then, you know, that's sure. If it's the expectation that you must reach that level, then that makes it something different, right? There's extra mm. pressure. Right? And then you will feel helpless because no one can do that. No one can, there's no silver bullet. Yeah. Right? So again, do you see that it's not even the sentence in itself that, that is necessarily healthy or unhealthy, constructive or, or, or harmful. Mm. It's the, like the mode in which we're expressing it, the way we're looking at ourselves and the world. And I, I do think that at the moment, um, being confronted by our own powerlessness or the limits of our own power stirs up a lot inside of, I mean, I'd say practically yeah. everyone. Yeah. Because we normally go through life, well, if I do X, then Y will happen. If I pick up this glass, then I, I will hold it and then I will put it down again. And experiencing and being exposed to things that we have no control over is very stirring up, both because it's horrible to experience uh, powerlessness mm. and because 
and I think we sort of alluded to this uh, before, but our own, uh, I don't like using the word baggage, but um, quite a few people have said to me, Ian, just, just use it, you know, just, just get on with it, use it. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the suitcases of stuff we already bring with us. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it's not all bad at all. Like, no, you can't, you can't, like, you know, except that you operate without it. Like it's possible. Exactly. Pa past stuff. You know, I'm, I'm holding both hands up in the air now as if I'm holding two suitcases. Mm. Um, and of course we bring those things to bear including experiences of like i said before like being told what to do mm. or being powerless now mm. it might be a big ask for everyone at the moment to tune into that or it might be something for therapy when things are a bit more stable or even right now but the kind of well, what is what have my experiences been of mm. not having control over what what happens to me that's also it can be very relevant also to understand if something is extra painful when we then see it being done to somebody else or we experience ourselves as you know, yeah. say powerless in a situation that i think it's just maybe, maybe we're just highlighting underlining something that we were i think saying implicitly yeah. that of course that's gonna have a role and then that helps explain why different people have different reactions to the same event yeah it's true but thank you very much for for thinking of me. I, I've loved uh, loved working with you as well. Yeah, it's been really I've really lovely. loved working yeah. with you. Thank you. I think you have so much to so much to give. Oh. And, and you, you know, I, and I'm not under any illusion. Like you know, when you say like you know the catcher, like I know I'm not changing the world with this at all. Um, I just figure well, you, you, you know, are. You are just not the whole world. <laughs> But, you know, if we're having conversations, you know, I'm always having conversations with people about how they balance life with everything. Mm. It feels like a conversation that needed to happen now because everything's so off kilter. And I, I loved how you finished that of like, there is no balance. And actually, I think that's where I felt most emotional in <laughs> this conversation. Mm. Just, you know, you can't make it all neat and tidy. Yeah, it's, there's a place for that yeah. uh, but if you're trying to manage your emotions by trying to enforce order on the world it won't work and yeah. I think when you when you when it look like you've let the pressure off yourself a bit yeah. with the finding order everywhere actually then some important feelings can come up you know I think probably it seemed like grief about the yeah. limits of this or maybe maybe relief you know, you know similar yeah. feeling putting order on the world it's not a problem it's just it's not going to be infinite it's, yeah. it can't do all jobs all the time there'll be time when you have to Bow yeah. to reality. but I think that's when with somebody with your credibility like understanding the psychology to say that I think it almost I I, I can feel like that that could like lift a weight off you of just like if Ian says it's okay to not feel that sense of balance you know <laughs> there, there's something in there I, I'm, I'm so grateful thank you Ian thank really you so welcome. much that explores work-life balance choices one story at a time with me Dahlia Wittenberg. Thanks for listening to this emergency episode. You can find out more about my interview with Ian in the show notes or go to www.a-fine-balance.com. To find out more about Ian's work and the range of therapeutic support available to those in need, please visit www.drianmoran.com. To subscribe for future episodes of A Fine Balance, the podcast, you can subscribe via your usual podcast provider. And for updates, follow at a fine balance underscore blog on Facebook or Instagram. Until next time, goodbye.